oil prices are back up, and because of that rise, conversations about alternative sources of income for the state have moved into the background once again. But many Alaskans want to end the annual fight over the state budget by moving to a less volatile system that doesn't rely on a fluctuating market. Alaskans from different backgrounds are working on building an inclusive and more stable fiscal plan for the state's future. We're discussing Just Transition today on Talk of Alaska. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. NEA Alaska is a professional education association representing over 11,000 of Alaska's dedicated public school employees. NEA Alaska members are united in their commitment to provide an excellent education for every student, regardless of background or zip code. Together, NEA Alaska members work with colleagues, parents, and their communities to build strong public schools that are productive, safe, and welcoming to all. Learn more at NEAalaska.org and help NEA Alaska reach, teach, and inspire all Alaska students. This message sponsored by NEA Alaska. The views expressed on this program are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. I'm Adeline Baxter. What is a regenerative economy and how does it provide an equitable footing for more people? What is a just transition? How does it work and who should be at the decision table to build it? Is it possible to build an economy that's robust, doesn't cause other problems, and creates a more equitable future for all Alaskans? Joining us today to help explore that are the co-founders of the Just Transition Summit, held this past weekend in Anchorage. Ruth Miller is the Climate Justice Co-Director for Native Movement. Jessica Gerard, joining us on Zoom, is the Executive Director of Fairbanks Climate Action Coalition. And Pamela Miller, here in the studio with Ruth, is the Executive Director of the Alaska Community Action on Toxics. Thanks for being here. It's good to be with you. Chicken Nick. And you can join our conversation, too. What would you like to see prioritized if and when Alaskans transition away from its dependence on fossil fuels? You can join our conversation by calling 1-800-478-8255 statewide. That's 1-800-478-8255. The local number is 907-550-8422 or email talk at alaskapublic.org. Ruth, let's start with you. With the vision, what is the vision in an ideal setting with what a regenerative economy looks like? What does that mean, regenerative economy? Mm -hmm. First, let me introduce myself. It's so important that we speak our native languages as often as possible. My name is Ruth Miller. My Dena'ina name is Shavaik Eason, and I was born and raised here in Anchorage. And at 25 years old, I've been the Climate Justice Director at Native Movement the past two years, um, but also have worked for 10 years now um, towards environmental justice, particularly for uh, the Bristol Bay region and here in South Central. 
And so when I, as a young Native woman, consider a regenerative economy, it is a return to what our indigenous communities and communities of color across the nation already recognize and know. We are familiar with economies that uh, contribute to mutual aid networks, economies that rely on uh, resource distribution and uh, principles of sharing, uh, community values that ensure no one gets left behind. We know that our economy, our management of home, does not uh, inevitably have to include capitalism, extraction, and exploitation. Instead, this is a call to bring back a values-centered framework, which reminds us that we all need one another to thrive, and that if we abandon our lands and waters and airs, we will be left with nothing and no hope for a future for generations yet to come. So when I consider a regenerative economy, it is not only a principled uh, return to the kinds of uh, values of respect and reciprocity that we know are necessary, but a regenerative economy is also inevitable because there is no future uh, within the oil and gas economy. Our lands, our waters are being poisoned. They are dying and we will die along with them. So as a young person, I know a regenerative economy is the only path forward uh, that might one day be able to sustain life for my grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll get in a moment um, into what happened this weekend with the Just Transition Summit. But I want to talk about um, the concept of deep reciprocity as it relates to Just Transition, because it's something we talked about beforehand, and it's something that definitely is featured on the Just Transition website. Mm. Deep reciprocity, in my mind, is one of the core tenets of what our economy would need to shift to. And that means support for all. That means deep equity and access to justice and just institutions uh, for all that are governed. That means that we give as much as we take, not only from the lands, but from one another. And so deep reciprocity in terms of just transition means uh, healing of our lands and waters, but it also means good, safe, high-paying, unionized jobs for our workers. It means validating the care economy and reproductive labor. It means ensuring that all have this equal opportunity um, to succeed and then are supported in thriving um, instead of uh, being exploited. And so deep reciprocity uh, is a notion that relies on interdependency and relationship. We are already so intertwined, but it is coming at great cost to one another. Now we know that we can support one another, and we already saw that through the pandemic. We saw the rise of mutual aid networks. We saw rent forgiveness in moratoriums. We saw what it would mean to prioritize people over profits, and it saved lives. So now at the converging of the climate crisis, the pandemic, the economic crisis that we are suffering, these same solutions that just worked for us over the past two years will point the way forward, and it all relies on respect, reciprocity, relationship. Mm -hmm. Well, I also want to talk about the concept of just transition. It's not unique to Alaska. As I learned talking to you before the show, it's a uh, national, if not international, movement. But first, I want to bring in uh, Pamela and Jessica. I should say Pamela and Ruth, both Millers, no relation. Uh, Jessica. We wish. <laughs> Jessica, you're based in Fairbanks, uh, typically, and Ruth and uh, Pamela are both based here in Anchorage. Um, Pamela, do you want to take a moment to introduce yourself and the Alaska Community Action on Toxics? Yes, thank you so much. Yes, I'm Pam Miller, and 
serve as the executive director of Alaska Community Action on Toxics, and we're an environmental justice and health organization that works with individuals and communities around the state to stop harmful exposures to toxic chemicals, whether that's from military, oil and gas, mining, and to help restore not only lands and waters, but our bodies that are affected by these chemical exposures. Mm-hmm. All right. And Jessica, did you want to give us a, your introduction? Sure. My name is Jessica Gerard. Um, I use they or she pronouns, and I usually am up on the lands of the Lower Tanana Dene peoples. I serve as the acting executive director. I guess I am not the acting, the executive director of the Fairbanks Climate Action Coalition. And we are a climate justice organization that came out of solidarity movements for the COP20 in Paris. And we have been devising and creating solutions at the local level, the Fairbanks level for climate justice in the interior. And we are led by partners and a diverse group of community members who share their volunteer time to push for climate justice, whether that be through engaging with GDEA, our energy co-op, to transition off of coal, or to work at a statewide campaign level to stop oil and gas subsidies. But the root of all of that is being in good relation to each other and becoming a community of practice to navigate how we face um, the transitions that we're all engaged in right now. Mm-hmm. So the Just Transition Summit, this was the second Just Transition Summit that was held this past weekend here in Anchorage. Uh, but it was not the first, although there had been some gap between the first in-person for obvious reasons. So um, whoever would like to jump in, uh, just sort of talking about how the three of you first came to um, decide that there needed to be a gathering like this in Alaska. I guess I'll just start if I could jump in and say that, yes, it was the second, but I also want to name that, as Ruth mentioned in her introduction, this work has been ongoing and never ceasing. This is kind of a new framing, possibly, about um, how we want to talk about transitioning our economies, but this conversation has never started and stopped. It has ebbed and flowed and continues. And so I just want to name that the three of us and our other partner organizations have not um, necessarily, we don't own this movement, right? Mm -hmm. That we are part of a large and ongoing work towards right relationship with each other and the land again. And just to name our other partners, we also work directly with Alaska Poor People's Campaign, Alaska Center, uh, Native People's Action, Alaska Public Interest Research Group, and Alaska Poor People's Campaign. Did I miss anybody, Mm y'all? I think that's the whole team. And so I guess what I will say is that, um, you know, FCAC started not too long ago, about seven years ago, and we didn't know what Just Transition was in our community that where I was at the time. And this framework was introduced to me by um, the executive director of Native Movement, Ine Begay, who had worked inside her um, traditional lands on the Navajo Reservation around Just Transition. And as we were partnering to come together to build out what FCAC was going to be, this framework was introduced to us. And in that framework, of course, there's this idea that we're moving not just from the economic as maybe Western ideals would say economy, but we are also working towards the restoration of how we are together 
and it's so much more than just oil and gas, right? It's chemicals, it's the prison industrial complex, it's, it's, it's energy, it's education, it's all of these things. So recognizing that we are all doing this in relationship, we sought out other partners who were working in the framework of justice. And so as Pam Miller said, she, you know, she's been working with ACAT, I believe as a founder and the chemicals and, and the justice of that, that these extractive systems are impacting us on all these levels. So we sought these partners and we became very visible to each other and had lots of hard conversations. And we still have to have hard conversations about what we want this to be like. And so we're in a moment from that original moment for our collaboration to now that is specifically about how do we grow into these other areas, recognizing that so much systems change has to happen for us to be in right relationship again. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're just joining us, uh, I want to let you know that this is Talk of Alaska. We're uh, meeting here with uh, Ruth Miller from the uh, who is the climate justice co-director of Native Movement, Pam Miller, who is the executive director at Alaska Alaska Community Action on Toxics, and Jessica Gerard, who you just heard, executive director at the Fairbanks Climate Action Coalition. We're discussing the Just Transition Summit, which just happened this past weekend here in Anchorage. Uh, and if anybody had anything they wanted to add to what Jessica just said, please go ahead. Yeah, I'd like to add that this this meeting that we just had was really about building communities. Yes, we have partner organizations. We've been in in conversation with one another, building relationships, building understanding. And this this summit was really about building community and relationships, creating together plans of action, sharing ideas, working for health, wellness, and healing. We recognized that all of us have been through very difficult times, especially these past couple of years, but recognizing the exploitation, the oppression, the, the harm, the intergenerational harm that has been committed because of these unjust systems, really just wanting to transform that, to liberate ourselves and each other, to help support one another really through that, moving beyond the boom and bust cycle to shape a thriving future and recognizing that the solutions are found within indigenous knowledge systems mm -hmm. that are here. The wisdom, the knowledge that is here, recognizing that, honoring that, listening to the elders and really understanding one another. So we, we talked a lot about what the term economy means, which is really care of our home. It goes so much beyond just money. It's not the hoarding of wealth that's, that's built from stealing lands, forced labor, exploitation, and greed. It's about caring for our home, understanding our home. And I think that was really a, a major part of the conversation this past weekend. Mm. One really beautiful quote that I'm carrying with me from one of our incredible keynote speakers, Gopal Dayaneni, who's a national leader uh, in this work and the EDA movement generation, he shared with us, ecology is permanent economy. And it was such a simple phrase that um, was such a cue to the foundations of why we are in this work and what we hope to do as a collective. You know, as, as Jessica and Pam just articulated so beautifully, you know, the Just Transition Collective, the 
summit. What we hope to do is not manifest this or teach this. We're just creating a container of what others are already doing to tell a bigger story. When we first held our first Just Transition Summit on Lower Tenen and Diné lands, we asked elders of the region what they would call this. We described this holistic um, remodeling of governance structures and conceptions of work and labor and education system and energy systems. And what they called it then was kotrasne, which in the Bentikanaga language means remembering forward, means we remember, because it is a resurgence of practices that are fundamentally familiar to us that our communities have always thrived on, particularly here in Alaska, but for the past 200 years. And so this summit here uh, held on my homelands, uh, Deni'ina lands, um, Joel Isaac and Helen Dick, two incredible language warriors who are deeply grateful for, um, taught us the phrase Nukhalnik, which was the title of the summit, Nukhalnik, which means uh, it is remembered within us. Don't forget it. So in terms, describe for listeners um, what the Just Transition Summit entailed. We've talked about a lot of different community partners. We've talked about the fact that this is not specific to Alaska. This is a a wider movement. So uh, what was this weekend's gathering and what did it involve? Jessica, did you want to start us off? Sure. So if you think about a conference you go to, right, you know, you normally hear about X person doing X project and how they funded it and how, how they're executing it and their community, et cetera. And we really wanted to, yes, uplift what was happening all across Alaska, whether that's the kelp resurgence in Cordova or farming and traditional practices out of Minana. But we also wanted to talk about how we do this together, not just these individual projects, but what is this, as Ruth said, this larger story of this movement happening already. And so what we decided was that we needed to really ground and acknowledge the pain of the last two years, yes, but also as Pam mentioned, the the several generations of pain that has happened and how that if we wanna move forward past this moment of COVID, this most recent pandemic, that we need to ground ourselves in healing. So we started the summit with a recognition of that time and space that is needed to heal and an awareness of how to move forward from that, recognizing that the work that we are doing, while it's phrased in terms of economy and, and you know justice, that it's really healing work. It's coming back to right relationship. So we centered on healing and what does um, housing justice look like if, if people are healed? What does it look like if land reclamation is healed. How does that heal us? So grounded in healing. And the second day we wanted to share these great examples. Again, a lot of us that do this work are always in the fight of stopping the bad. And we really wanted to uplift at this summit, the good and amplifying the good, reimagining what things could be like, what shared cooperative wealth could look like, what is wealth. And so just trying to dive into a bit of of the examples that are already happening and really envisioning other possibilities. And the third day we wanted to set that into action. So how are we doing that together? As Pam said, right? We're building this community. We are connecting and we want to make it not just one issue area, one fight, but one movement that really articulates that we're already winning. We are doing the work to win 
to reclaim lands and waters for the health of future generations, which is diametrically opposed to what's happening at the Denina Center right now, which I believe we'll get into, but we really wanted to center on how we are already winning and reimagine the belief reinvigorate the belief of the possibilities. Because frankly, I don't believe we're in a crisis of solutions. I think we're in a crisis of vision. Mm -hmm. Well, and let's, you mentioned some examples or uh, what are, are there sort of, you know, uh, examples out there in the world of more regenerative, regenerative economies that um, Alaska should be striving to emulate? I think there were so many that, that were shared at this conference. It was just incredibly inspiring. Jessica mentioned the the kelp farming and and that is tribally based, helping helping local communities build kelp farms that not only grow food, kelp as food, but this is also a way to restore the ocean. And that was just so inspiring. And we heard from Dune Lankard from Native Conservancy about that project. It was just wonderful. And then about growing food, about food sovereignty, about protecting traditional foods. We heard about Oluktik Grown and Calypso Farm and efforts to, to grow food together in community, Yardacopia here in Anchorage, the Akiak Broadband Program, which is so vital to the local economy of that region and, and how it's expanding beyond Akiak to many communities of that region. We heard about respectful harvesting methods and ways to um, do that in a way that is is restorative rather than extractive. We heard about the Sustainable Southeast Partnership and Tongass Microscale uh, work that's being done to help restore the economy and the lands and waters of the of the Tongass region. Kehiltna Birchworks was another example, the Imago Initiative. There's so many that we we could, I think, talk about, and I'm sure Jessica and Ruth also have some other great examples that stand out. Mm -hmm. Well, I think what I just want to emphasize is that all those examples Pam just shared are representative of many more, and they're all Alaskan. So we don't have to look somewhere out in the world for what regenerative economic models look like. We have them here. I mean, from small-scale hydroelectric to burgeoning new wind farms in rural communities, um, you know, the, the transformation is already happening. It, as Jessica said so beautifully, it's not a matter of not having the right solutions. It's about um, mobilizing um, this and using this critical momentum uh, to carry our entire state forward. We're already doing the work. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, in theory, then, do you just feel like building upon all of these projects that are already happening and uh, connecting them more strongly? I mean, is, is that the dream that one day, eventually, all of these micro sort of examples all over the state will be able to replace the energy industry as it's, you know, as it stands today in Alaska? You know, Gopal Dianeni again shared a really beautiful quote that the scale <clears throat> of the problem does not dictate the scale of the solutions, that we do not need a mechanism that is as large as, you know, the global supply chain to uh, solve the harms that are being committed by the global supply chain. Instead, yes, they must add up, but they must happen everywhere. And we must be committed to relocalization of our food networks as well as our energy grids. And so when we consider, you know, a future for Alaska, yes, it means that we need to stop exporting 
finite natural resources at the cost to our lands, waters, and people, and instead invest in our own communities in healthy and sustainable ways so that we can carry uh, Alaska forward. Um, so yes, I hope that this continues to expand all across the state. But I think what we hope to do at the summit is is um, collective learning as well. So it's not just about bringing folks together to talk about their work, which is crucially important, but it's also about inspiring those who might be tempted, who might need support, who might need guidance, who are just beginning to initiate these projects in their own communities or hadn't yet um, thought about the possibilities of what their communities could uh, mobilize on. So our next chapter of these Just Transition Summits, we hope will be local and regional uh, so that we might support deep investment in place with local and community leadership so that they might exercise their sovereignty over their community's future while also drawing on the tools and resources of our of our state network. Um, because it is so important that we do change the story that is told about Alaska. So often we are fed the myth that Alaska is oil dependent, that our economy will never survive if we do not have oil, gas, and, and minerals, if we do not have the extractive and harmful fishing industry. But in truth, our people are, are being held hostage to these industries that are harming us, that are harming our lands and waters and decreasing any chance for future prosperity. Um, so it's not just that you know these are alternative options. It's that they are the only inevitabilities that we can hope towards. And they are founded on deep healing. Working towards regenerative solutions will heal us all. Mm -hmm. Jessica, was there something that you wanted to add to that? Oh, I was going to say a very similar thing, though probably not as articulated gracefully <laughs> as Ruth, but I really think it's important to reiterate is that the often, you know, when people push back about our movements and what we're trying to achieve, there's this notion of, well, how can you bring that to scale? And that's not going to replace the oil industry and all of this. And the goal is not to replace the oil industry because, frankly, that scale is not going to whatever resource we decide to engage with next, which I hope is not liquefied natural gas or endless mining. But the more that we talk about bringing things to scale so we can export things for this global economy, the more we're missing the point. These solutions have to happen at a watershed level, at a community level for all the reasons that Ruth just said. And I really think that's worth emphasizing because we have to change the notion of what we're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. Well, we just uh, got our first email from Kathleen and Haynes. She says, thank you for this program and its thoughtful part participants. Investing in fairies is proven uh, a proven return, $2 for every $1 invested. We need to restore our fairy system and associated jobs. Investing in Alaska's assets, healthy watersheds, wildlife habitat, parks, trails, recreation. Alaska is going to be a draw for future populations. Yes, reciprocity to the land and water is essential. Sustainable logging can build new homes. The opportunities for small businesses are endless. This will require a moderate state income tax to sustain a fresh, new, diversified economy. Is that discussion um, at all a part of Just Transition's work, the, the idea that a state income tax would be... Um, necessary. I know that uh, conversation was much um, uh, more active in the legislature last year before oil flight prices shot back up. I can I jump in and say that, um, oh, sorry, Pam, you jump in. 
I don't know that we talked explicitly about that. We did talk about false solutions, which are tax credits to the oil and gas industries, to the extractive industries, and subsidies to those industries, and the need for redistribution of wealth. And I think that's really what we need to do to, to make sure that we redistribute wealth in an equitable way so that we can support caring for each other, re support the restoration of lands and waters, and support local small businesses and solutions at the local level that can really help support community and help support people in the long term. Mm -hmm. So I would agree with the, the caller, definitely. Yes, and we would just say, like, we don't have specific campaigns that we're running together, specifically as seven organizations towards pushing for an income tax. I personally believe that's a great solution. And also as a, a person from the interior, I don't know the solutions of Haynes. And so, yes, I want to support ferries because I just learned about the $2 income. And so I think that's really an important solution. And again, to bring back to the point of local solutions matter, but these state solutions such as an income tax and you know, canceling um, oil and gas tax subsidies are in collaboration with those local solutions. So I'd, I'd like to offer a bit of an alternative perspective here. Um, big yes to many things, but I do want to kind of challenge this idea of a state income tax as the, as the inevitable solution with a lot of love because um, I don't think I'm alone when I express deep distrust for state management of finances. <laughs> and so when we consider the appeal of a state income tax, I think what is um, – what, what is attractive to us is the idea of a collective pot of money that would be redistributed and reinvested into meaningful projects that help move our economy towards regeneration. I do not believe that the state of Alaska is a successful arbiter of justice and has not, has entirely under this administration, failed to demonstrate any interest or compassion or commitment to the preservation of our most marginalized communities. Um, so if we are considering you know, what what con contribution to a shared pot might be, well, why not have tribal land taxes like uh, exists in Oakland and the broader uh, community of California and opt-in land tax that would support tribal governments, you know, alternative to the state to reinvest in rural communities? Uh, what if it was a, an opt-in donation to mutual aid networks that supported community investment strategies that way. I mean, when we talk about creating a commons of capital and community finance, I do not believe that the state of Alaska has proven that they can be responsible with our state finances and, and lead deep investment into sustainable futures. So while I... Um, you know, I encourage folks to think more creatively about the values that are underlying these collective actions. Hmm. Okay. Well, we are going to need to take a quick break on that note. Um, when we come back, we'll talk more with Ruth Miller, Pam Miller, and Jessica Gerard about uh, the Just Transition Summit that was held this past weekend here in Anchorage and creating a regenerative economy for all of Alaska. This is Talk of Alaska. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. People who smoke or have smoking-related conditions like lung and heart disease are more likely to get seriously ill from COVID-19. Not using any tobacco or e-cigarette products is one of the best ways to keep your immune system strong, ready to fight all kinds of viruses. If you decide to quit, help is available. Call Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line at 1-800-QUIT-NOW 
or text READY to 200-400 to get the support you need to quit for good. This message sponsored by Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. I'm Adeline Baxter. Today, we are discussing a just transition away from fossil fuels and what that looks like. Our guests are Ruth Miller from Native Movement, Pam Miller from Alaska Community Action on Toxics, and Jessica Gerard Fairbanks from the Fairbanks Climate Action Coalition. And all three of them are also co-founders of the Just Transition Summit, which was held recently uh, here in Anchorage. Uh, and so we're going to be talking about regenerative economies um, and what it would take for Alaska to uh, get to the point where it can be independent from fossil fuels. Um, and uh, we have a few callers on the lines, so I want to bring them in. But first, I want to give you the number if you would also like to join the conversation. 1-800-478-8255 is the statewide number. 1-800-478-8255. The local number is 907 907- Five five zero eight four two two, and you can email us talk at alaskapublic.org. Um, let's bring on Stu, uh, um, calling from Muldoon. Hi, Stu. You're on Talk of Alaska. Oh, uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to let people know Chant uh, Snoo Muldoon Park over there uh, at Muldoon and the Bar and east towards the military reservation. They do have. Uh, a uh, pretty large area for people to have garden plots, and you can rent them out and grow whatever you want. And last time I was there, there's just about the biggest cross-section of uh, the world that you could imagine out there. Um, folks from all over and uh, trying to grow all kinds of stuff. So um, if you live in that part of town, you might want to look into it. Uh, my, my other question was um, uh, the fossil fuel carbon footprint problems. Um, how much are we talking about just doing things without uh, uh, burning fuel and creating uh, carbon footprints? Is that uh, the main gist? In other words, if you can hunt and fish uh, without an engine or a snow machine or a four-wheeler, uh, is that like our goal rather than um, uh, using everything made in the lower 48 or Japan and burning gas? I'm just trying to get a better handle on what actually talking about it sure it's looking to me like we're moving towards the amish way of things which um is something that a lot of people from the north 48 can relate to maybe um but we need to visualize things here and i'm trying to visualize what we're talking about but okay thank yeah thank you Stu. thanks for that um and yeah thanks for mentioning the community gardens here in anchorage i know other communities have them too and there's a really robust community garden program here in anchorage um ruth did you have a response to Stu's second point yeah, thank you, Stu. Well, I first want to calm any fears that we are trying to impose Amish lifestyles or anything of the like on folks. Um, energy and electricity does not necessitate fossil fuel extraction. Um, having having you know good quality. Uh, 
clean homes on the grid um, is not dependent on the style of harmful extraction that we are experiencing um, now. And there are many alternative solutions that are just, if not more, uh, energy productive, um, but much more sustainable for the land. And so really what I want to emphasize, you know, and, and I encourage you to I encourage all folks to explore uh, the kinds of clean energy projects that are already happening across the state. But what I would like to emphasize out of your question is that the push for um, shifting off of diesel fossil fuels should not be on the consumer. We are not putting uh, the blame, nor is it realistic to put the blame of fossil fuel extraction on consumers um, who, uh, you know, are, are doing their best, leaving their, living their lives within a, a capitalist system of extraction that has taught us that this is normal and okay. It has been um, made too easy to uh, consume at exponential rates, but it is not individual consumption that is the greatest contributor to fossil fuels. In fact, the U.S. military has one of the world's greatest uh, carbon footprints, more, greater than, than most other countries, in fact. And so when we're talking about a just transition, we're talking about a all the things that we've discussed and a whole scale movement away from these carbon emitting industries um, and towards regenerative solutions that relocalize, but also, yes, fundamentally shift off of these extractive, um, these extractive energy extraction methods. Uh, we also have a email that I want to get to in a moment because it's talking about education, and I think that that's a big part of the conversation um, from many different levels. But uh, first, I wanted to touch on something um, I, one of you mentioned earlier. I'm sorry, I forget who, um, and that was just the uh, the fair representation across communities and having uh, you know equal input from all parties. And I just want to. Uh, sort of like to Stu's point, visualize how is that going to be possible um, in a regenerative economy in uh, an Alaska that has transitioned away from fossil fuels? How do we ensure that there is uh, equal representation from all communities, especially those that have been disenfranchised? Um, and, uh, you know, what what is going to make that achievable? That's a very good question. A and one. I think I think a lot of the discussion this past weekend did focus on how we can create a deep democracy, how we can make sure that voices from all communities are fairly represented. So that has to do with voting rights, making sure that people have access, the language access, everything that goes into voting rights, and that those rights are not diminished but enforced and strengthened. So I think really we are about creating that through education, ensuring voting rights, making sure the systems are in place, that that people do have a voice, that people do have a place to allow for the the visions and the not only elected officials, but the kind of future that that serves everyone, that makes sure that we are caring for each other to make sure that that we are able to support one another mm -hmm. in making sure that we all have a voice. So would you say then that a regenerative economy relies on a very healthy democracy? Is, you know, is government, as much as government, I think, you know, has been maybe uh, 
a frustrating factor in the, many of the things that you're talking about? Is that an important part? Well, I would kind of, again, have a bit more of a creative response that, you know, investing in deep democracy does not necessarily mean investing in this form of capital G government that we somehow find ourselves in now. This form of governance structures with, you know, the adoption of these lands into the state of Alaska and, and and of course, into the federal government is, is relatively new uh, in the long history of 30,000 years of human occupation and relationship with these lands, right? And so when we think about deep democracy, um, yes, that means voting participation in local, state, and national elections that is equitable, that is accessible, and it means investment in collective decision-making at all levels. And that does not just refer to deep democracy in participation through our government our formalized governments. It also means collective decision-making at the community level, at the neighborhood level, certainly at the village level. And so thinking about how we incorporate collectivity um, and and shared investment into all forms of our of, of the kinds of institutions that we consent to is crucially important, you know, from Anchorage assemblies to our public schools. Um, increasing involvement by historically marginalized communities of color and, and presently marginalized communities of color, to be clear, is a crucial step that embodies deep democracy, but does not limit us to what the state or the federal government offer us. Mm-hmm. And I would just add to that to both of these points is that there it's a practice, right? We have not been in active practice, many of us, um, of practicing democracy. We're not doing it all the time. We're not doing it in a good way, which minimizes some voices while uplifts other voices. And we have these community agreements that we engage with and we talked about at the summit every day. And they are not to... Um, you know, dictate how we are in relationship together, but to guide and to practice so that when we talk about marginalized voices, when we talk about those who have been quieted or left behind, when we want to practice a deep democracy, it's also, we need some different rules about who the decision makers are and how we talk to one another so that we can actually believe in a process of localized and deep democracy, because all of this is a practice. We've been called to believe in a certain way of being and that belief has obviously led to ecological degradation and so now we have to practice a different way of being in relationship. Mm -hmm. Well I want to talk more about this but I also want to bring in uh, Caroline who's been waiting patiently on the phones. Uh, Caroline is calling from Anchorage and has a point she wanted to bring up about income tax. Hi Caroline. Yes hi. Um, Income taxes were collected uh, when I first got here back in 67 and uh, I guess people looked around and saw the need in our state and, and looked around the nation and understood why income taxes were required of citizens. Well, we're citizens of Alaska, so I don't understand what that problem is because everybody watches what they have to pay in taxes and, and express themselves um, completely and loudly if they don't like what they're seeing. Um, the other thing that I wanted to quickly mention is investment in people. Uh, Our school systems need a lot of help. And uh, listening to NPR a lot, I recently heard this morning the discussion of the number of professions that we're going to be 
nationwide, and we don't want to lose people up here. But of course, if you give out scholarships, you can uh, you can require uh, a compensation from the person who gets the education to spend a little bit of time where the uh, people live that gave them the funds for that education. But anyway, the the point is, we're going to be in desperate need, not just in the nation, but in Alaska, for certain professions. And they're the ones that you can't do without, medical and so forth. Uh, so I think that we need to look, first of all, at what is our obligation to participate and to enjoy the things that Alaska gives us. And at the same time, what can we do for human capital that will take us into the future? Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you, Caroline. Um, and just sort of piggybacking off of that, Harry uh, here in Anchorage sent us an email asking if the panel could please comment on the role of education, particularly higher education, in preparing new professionals for an equitable economy. So I think that's somewhat uh, related to what Caroline was talking about and I know is also a part of what Just Transition um, has been discussing in uh, how to prepare people and younger generations and -and up-and-coming people who are coming into the movement. So what does that look like in terms of um, the educational aspect of a just, Just Transition? Jessica, since you're on Zoom, we can never tell if you're about to hop in. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I can jump in a little bit um, about this because as a person that has received higher education, which has been a blessing, I think that often it is the gold standard of what is needed in our current systems. And I think the curriculum needs a huge reshift. And there's a lot of folks, especially up at UAF, that are indigenizing academia. And the reason that that feels so critical to me is because if we are not, and again, this sounds right back to what we've been saying, if we are not understanding our relationship to the lands and recognizing indigenous ways of knowing as crucially as we allow Western science to dictate the decisions we're making moving forward, we are not going to be successful. And so investing in indigenized education through these systems of academia is a critical part of a just transition, specifically when you think about the longstanding relationship of language and how that defines what happens in an ecosystem. And so if we are only educating on systems of capital, if we are only educating on systems that operate within the governance structure as we know it, we are not transitioning our education systems and our students to be prepared for the transition. Another piece of that is this notion of I mean, I don't know if everyone feels this way out there, but I truly feel this deep grief of the moment that we live in. And there is not a place in academia or uh, K through 12 that talks about the grief of this moment to navigate what it is to move through this time. And not just, it feels to me that a lot of our education is just pretending and building into the narrative of business as usual, even though as individuals, we know that we need to change what we're teaching ourselves so we can be prepared for the actual future ahead of us, not the one that we think we should have had for the last generation or two. 
I think just to expand on that, thank you, Jessica. One thing that I'd also add is that we, a core tenant of just transition is also worker transition, investing in workers that are already, you know, out in the oil fields that are already in these extractive industries that are certainly not at fault for the pain and the trauma wrought by these industries, but are trying to put food on the table for their families. So investing in um, opportunities, certificate programs, opportunities for higher education for those who would like to acquire transferable skills so that they might begin uh, investing their time and energy into preparing for solar transition and wind farm engineering is really, really crucial. So a just transition certainly will not abandon uh, the workers and the laborers that have um, done the best that they can within the system of exploitation, but instead hopes to offer higher paying, paying more meaningful uh, and, and welcoming jobs um, that constitute this new regenerative economy. Mm -hmm. And that's really important. We definitely want to talk about how to bring people in. I'm sure um, many of these topics have uh, a tendency to shut some people down. Some people shut down over them. Um, and I'm sure even listeners today probably heard what we're discussing and changed the radio station. And that's fine. That happens on plenty of shows, not just this topic. <laughs> but uh, we will discuss that more when we come back. We need to take another quick break. When we come back, we'll hear more from Ruth Miller, uh, Climate Justice Co-Director of Native Movement, Pam Miller, Executive Director at Alaska Community Action on Toxics, and Jessica Gerard, Executive Director at Fairbanks Climate Action Coalition. And if you want to join our conversation, you still have time. Call us statewide, 1-800-478-8255, 1-800-478-8255. The local number is 907-550-8422, or you can email talk at alaskapublic.org. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. On June 11th, Alaska will have the first round of a special election to fill the open seat in Congress. Every Alaskan voter will receive a ballot in the mail. In the June 11th primary, you can only vote for one person. The ranking happens later. Pick your favorite candidate, sign, and get a friend to sign as well. Then mail it back. And remember that June 11th is the Pick One primary. This message sponsored by Alaskans for Better Elections. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. I'm Adeline Baxter, and I'm here today discussing a just transition and what a regenerative economy looks like for Alaska with Ruth Miller from Native Movement, Pam Miller from Alaska Community Action on Toxics, and Jessica Gerard, Executive Director at Fairbanks Climate Action Coalition. Uh, we were just talking about uh, how to make this, um, you know, not a scary topic or a just overly political topic um, necessarily for people who want to have this discussion. So um, certainly in the work that the founders, our, our guests today, have done around uh, just transition, they've certainly encountered opposition. And so I wanted to ask, how do you approach, um, and you were just talking about oil workers and folks who are very much um, in, involved and work in the fossil fuel industry, how do you approach, um, you know, bringing these ideas to them and talking about how it can involve them as well in a productive way. Jessica, did you wanna start us off? Sure, I think the first note is that there's this immediate fear that shutting down something is an abandonment of others. And that has been true in so many communities. If you look at Appalachia, for example, 
shutting down coal has been a big cultural shift for that community. And so I think acknowledging that shift is critical, but also working to make space for those leaders in those fields that must transition for this ecological shift to be possible is to bring them to the table, listen to their fears and uplift their solutions. What do they wanna be doing? What skills do they wanna be learning? How do we navigate these union areas? How do we support from the lens that we come from as community organizers and not union workers? I am really excited to continue to learn with workers directly about the paths that they see forward and supporting those paths um, as they align with our vision for the justice that we need moving forward because they are front and center. And I don't know that a lot of people know this, but the Just Transition Framework actually came from union organizing and it came from this idea that the transitions that we're talking about are necessary and will happen. And those that are most impacted, those that are required uh, to feed their families through these jobs is that their leader, they want to be able to lead the transition because they are gonna be one of the most impacted groups of people. So I'm excited to learn and take leadership from those communities. And I would just like to add this is an inclusive movement, and we intend to leave no one behind. We had the opportunity to learn from labor leaders this past weekend from Unite Here Now, the work that they've done to bring their workers through COVID-19 and beyond and, and to support their workers. We heard from IBEW and some very innovative work that they're doing to transition workers into renewable energy and other programs. and the Alaska Workers Alliance that works to support workers who aren't unionized and to make sure that they have their basic needs met. So we have a lot to learn from the labor movement. And and this weekend was about listening to labor leaders to make sure that, that we're not the ones necessarily with all of the answers, but that, that the labor movement has a lot to teach us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think fundamentally as well, all of us here, we operate from a place of love and fundamental hope. And so to those who, you know, are tempted to turn off their, their radios at hearing all this, you know, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? You know, something that we often talk about in our movement is change is inevitable. Justice is not. And what we all fundamentally want, you know, even oil executives, even those who hear this and hate us, you know, we want stability. We want safety. We want security. I trust we all want a future for our children. Um, and because of our present system, we already lack this. This is already being abandoned. And we are already seeing communities suffering the consequences, communities like Kivalina and Nutak that are falling into the ocean that are some of our first country's refugees, climate refugees, and are being forced to uh, leave their homelands without hardly any federal support. You know, this notion that we are stable now, that we are safe now, that we are secure now, it's smoke and mirrors. Corporate profiteering will never lead us to the kinds of community wellness that we know we deserve. So when we know that change is inevitable because we already lack those things, and I have to ask folks, you know, what would it take to be brave? What would it take to venture into this new future together and build it on 
justice, build it on metrics and values that will ensure reciprocity and respect are core tenets of what we create next. Um, you know, we are doing this work even for those that hate us now. And if they don't join us along the way, then we'll see them on the other side. <laughs> we only have a few minutes left. There's so much more to talk about, but I want to make sure to uh, bring in some of our callers. Uh, we have Sandra in Talkeetna. Sandra, you're on Talk of Alaska. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Thank you for the topic. I have a comment or question about the idea project. They're pushing the West Sioux Mining Road up in uh, from McKenzie Point up through the Matsu Borough. Tons of bridges, 100 miles of road, all to support a foreign-owned mine. And I just want to say, it seems to me another huge example of misspent state funds that's basically just tearing apart the, what is our biggest asset here in Alaska, our fish, our pristine wilderness, when the people do not want it. It was a resounding negative at the Matsu Borough, and yet they're still pushing forward to spend millions of state dollars. And what y'all know about it, and um, and I'll take comments off the air. Thank you for taking my call. Thanks, Sandra. Uh, I don't know how much you guys are familiar with the project. I'm not certainly not an expert. Um, I know we have talked about Ada for sure on the show before. Um, and thank you for bringing up that topic. I don't know that we'll be able to get into it too deeply. I, I do want to bring in our last caller, um, Libby from Anchorage. Really quick, Libby, we only have a few minutes left. Libby, can you hear me? Oh, okay, I guess we might have lost Libby. Sorry, Libby. <laughs> All right, well, um, I want to give you each um, a moment to close. We really only have about a minute and a half left, though. So um, what are sort of the takeaways that you would like people listening today to um, to take and to go out and explore this topic more? Whoever wants to jump in. I've spent a lot of my years working with Alaska Community Action on Toxics and listening mm -hmm. to the pain and the harm caused by these extractive industries, oil, gas, and mining, and also military exploitation, the people that are suffering multi-generational harm because of chemicals passed from one generation to the next, and the cancers and the endocrine disorders. We have an opportunity. Not only that, we have an obligation and a responsibility to move away from that carbon extractive mode of operation to restore the lands, our bodies, and the waters so that we can live together in, in harmony and peace without the need for these extractive industries that have caused so much harm over so many generations. And there was so much wisdom, I'd, I'd say, from, from healers and elders there. We are and we become the medicine for the land. We are our own healers. Mm -hmm. What the hands do, the heart learns. Mm -hmm. feed the spirit within you. This, these are all things that I think we need to carry with us. We're building relationships and communities that last so that we can support one another, care for one another. Yeah. Well, I'm so sorry to have to leave it at that. Thank you mm. all so much. Ruth Miller from Native Movement, Pam Miller from uh, Alaska Community Action on Toxics, and Jessica Gerard from Fairbanks Climate Action Coalition. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks to Tobin Miller, Tobin Shelby, rather. We have so many Millers. And Kavitha George on the phones. I'm Adeline Baxter. Thanks for listening to Talk of Alaska today. And you can find more information about Just Transition on the Talk of Alaska page on alaskapublic.org.
Talk of Alaska is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Today's program is available online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media. Thank you.